I think people will maybe begin to wake up to the fact that they've been living in a kind of fantasy version or a fantasy version of what public opinion in the rest of the world holds for Britain and whether or not they want to live like in kind of the tourist's view of Britain, which is, um, you know, Harry Potter and Bridgerton and um, Downton Abbey, or whether they want to live in a different kind of country. Dear listeners, I know that the death of any public figure can present a difficult time in your life and in struggling to deal with the range of emotions that an event like this may throw up. Bunga is here for you, and we're here to listen, to talk, to converse, or just to be a shoulder to cry on if that needs to be. Uh, on second thought, um, I realized that this moment may be a very difficult one, especially for people of color in experiencing uh, and dealing with the range of emotions that the Queen's death has thrown up and memories that may resurface about colonialism, imperialism, death, devastation, oppression, wrought, some believe, by the Queen around the world. So I believe this is a difficult moment for all of us, for myself, Alex, for George. Hi, George. And for Phil. Hi, Alex. Hi, Phil. Yeah, it's not actually a difficult moment, but thank you for that wonderful introduction, Alex. Okay. Well, now that we've got that established and that... You put on, uh, you put on it, your serious voice, your I'm I'm here to listen I'm voice, here to listen. Which is I just, I just a strange one I for, care. A, for a broadcast medium like podcast. <laughs> <but> <laughs> just want to create that intimate. We, we care. We care whether you're sad about the Queen dying, whether you're sad that the Queen ever existed, whatever it might be. Um, we're here for you. Whether you're so, whether you're uh, an Irish football fan chanting uh, <laughs> on the stands some uh, songs about your feelings or it, not. Yeah, indeed. Or whether you're a provincial Brit, maybe devastated about the fact that there will be no golden jubilee or whatever the one is if you live like forever. Uh, anyway. I think she had a platinum jubilee already, Alex. Oh, okay. But... Um, so as, as listeners might've gathered from, uh, Alex's introduction, we're talking about the death of the queen where we're, we're recording on Friday, the 9th of September. So King Charles III, uh, which I think, you know, irrespective of anyone's feelings about monarchy or anything else, you have to recognize that Charles is not a propitious name for, uh, an English king. Um, anyway, King Charles III. Well, is why, why might that be? Why might that be? Well, things didn't end well for Charles I. So it's difficult, you know, you can't but help uh, note that it's a strange name to give your kid when you know that he's going to be the heir to your throne. I mm. keep on. I mean, I guess that was, that was quite a headless decision um, on the part of the Queen. Quite a headless decision. We've already got George, yes, Alex. Okay. We've no. got, don't, already got don't, George. Don't try. I mean, listeners will not accept <laughs> limitations. They'll see right through it. Okay. Anyway. Uh, more seriously, tell us what actually we're going to be talking about. 
Yeah, so he's not, so though he becomes automatically king upon the queen's death, um, he's not, his um, kind of address to the nation apparently will happen around 6 p.m. our time, so in a couple of hours after um, after we're recording. Um, so we're kind of still in a something of an interregnum, and there's going to be quite a few days of mourning. <laughs> this is, sorry, this is the real interregnum. You know, we talk about the end of the end of history, but, you know, this right here, these few hours. Yeah, these the are the real, well, it's a genuine interregnum in a way, right? Because interregnum is Latin yeah. for in between mm-hmm. reigns. So, is it? Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, well, it's continue. also very appropriately British because you're almost always in between reigns. Because it rains. Bloody hell, you're on fire. Oh, my I mean, show some decorum, show some respect. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we we are we are in in the um, intervening period where morbid symptoms can occur, hence mm. hence why and, we're and bad puns. Maybe maybe some of those Indeed, more morbid puns. symptoms. Okay. So, but what we're talking about is the death of the queen, um, with specific reference to some pieces we've culled some pieces regarding kind of obituaries and reflections on her death, um, and we wanted to think about kind of. Um, you know, her public role and also the um, what her death portends might portend for the future of the British state, um, but also think about it in a bit more of its global significance. Um, one of the few kind of things that came out of it that was that I found quite, um, quite pleasing to me was the fact that um, Brazil has declared three days of national mourning <laughs> for the Queen, because the reason I have to explain to listeners why this is pleasing to me, because Alex... Alex, dear listeners, he's a Londoner to his marrow, to the tips of his a fingers. What? A Londoner, a Hoxton. A he's a <laughs> he's a Hoxton hipster, and no matter where he goes, he'll never be able to escape his roots. And so, the fact that he went to a country that has is a republic has absolutely nothing to do with the British Empire, doesn't even really have any links to Britain to speak of, and yet still declares three days mourning for the Queen. I think the world is trying to tell Alex something. Well, I mean, he should come home. That is, <laughs> that is uh, <clears throat> entirely down to Bolsonaro, who, um, and I've discussed this with you know various Brazilian, you know, Brazil journalists and analysts, trying to figure out why he's actually done this and declared the the, the three days of mourning, which have no practical implication, by the way, um, and and none of us could really figure out a reason. It's just Bolsonaro's randomness. He probably thought that everybody around the world was going to do it. He maybe wanted to seem statesmanlike and then declared it, which is weird because he's also very happy to be a pariah most of the time as well. So anyway, I thought I thought there was an element of it hasn't the haven't the Bolsonaro family been flirting with some of the old Brazilian royal family? Well, so there there is within the Bolsonaro base some monarchists. I mean, it's very you know very minoritarian, but um, I mean, well, literally minoritarian, but there was it's a very small minority of his base, but they're there. And recently Brazil celebrated, um, you know, it's, it's independence. Um, and it's also, it, it becoming a Republic and in, uh, it, it, they brought the old, uh, emperor's heart back to Brazil. I mean, completely farcical thing. And it's funny because Bolsonaro is a recurrent critic of, uh, other politicians, especially the workers' party's expenditures on public events and stuff. And then he obviously pays to get the embalmed heart, <laughs> Of the old emperor shipped to Brazil from Portugal. Anyway, um, all, I mean, all very you know, logical. if you see if you see that on eBay, you got to snap it up. I mean, but it didn't Bolsonaro's um, announcement. It was kind of on like ye oldie worldy, like obviously electronic, but ye oldie worldy scroll. Yeah, and like very fake, and very bad like, English. And, yeah, and I, like I, do, I do want to emphasize, seal. yeah, it's just fucking. It weird. was naff. I, I mean, I do want to emphasize, um, or really send out this message that there are. Uh, Portuguese to English translators who are native in English 
uh, who <laughs> who are available for work and don't charge very much. So you know, uh, you know where we'll to find happily, me. Happily work for Bolsonaro. <laughs> we'll happily work for Bolsonaro. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, aside from the, I think the so, whole ridiculousness a, well, of Brazil, I think there is a there is a point here about there is a point. her yeah, there is a being point. the kind of the world's queen. You know, if Diana was the people's princess, uh, Queen Elizabeth being the world's queen, and feeding into kind of Disney-ish, Disney-ish fantasies of ye olde worldy yeah. uh, kingdom, which which there's, has appeal yeah. well beyond yeah. Britain. So there's 15 governments outside the UK where the Queen is head of state and um, 36 other nations of the Commonwealth where she's a symbolic figurehead. So there really is like, not that's obviously not the whole world, but there is a, a factual basis for considering her to be the, the Queen but of it, the world. It's more than that, though, because it's like, you know, in play that there's so much interest in places like Brazil or even some marginal political opportunity for somebody like Bolsonaro to declare days of mourning. The fascination in the US, you know, the very fact that the republic, which separated from Britain, is lowering its flags to half mast on um, Nancy Pelosi's and Joe Biden's kind of orders. I mean, it, it's genuinely like it is a global moment. And I think. This will kind of the global attention, which will only intensify over the next few days as heads of state begin to arrive for the funeral, as the cameras descend to kind of watch all the pageantry and all the glamour, which interestingly, you know, is relatively recent. And this is one of the things that the Guardian, that the listeners will find in the show notes, is that this was only really, it's a fairly recent innovation, the kind of the pageantry of the royal family, and that it has corresponded to um, the democratization of Britain, in fact, that there is kind of greater pageantry and gla- or glitz, I suppose, associated with um, state, royal family state occasions. Anyway, the point being that this, I think, will, um, the fact that Britons inhabit kind of um, will feel like they're at the world, the center of the world's attention. Once the cameras kind of um, turn to something else and there's plenty going on in the world to kind of draw their attention, um, I think that's when the kind of actual impact of the Queen's death will begin to be felt. So it's not so much now kind of with, you know, kind of vox pop on the streets of tearful mourners outside of Buckingham Palace gates, but rather I think in due course um, when the world's attention passes and then we're left with the fact that the single figurehead who is bound together so much um, British political history and again is like the Queen's a kind of a quintessential 20th century figure. Um, the Queen, in fact, um, I mean, this is another point I think which is worth making is um, there's been so much kind of hostility from Irish and black Twitter, um, so-called, you know, hashtag black Twitter and hashtag Irish Twitter, so-called, mainly led by um, uh, black American woke academics kind of talking about um, British colonization. But something that's striking is, you know, she's the queen of decolonization, right? Um, and that is something that the woke American academics will never be able to take away from her much as, as much as they, I'm sure they would like to. She oversaw the decline of the British Empire um, and the separation of the overwhelming kind of bulk of imperial territory from the British crown and British state. And so in that sense, you know, she's... Um, you know, she has that kind of world historic character of being the single individual who binds together the period of British decline. So the end of the empire, the entry into, as it was then, the European economic community, as well as living long enough to see us leave the European Union. Um, and, um, you know, that's an astonishing kind of um, an astonishing kind of uh, longevity 
and career for a single person to bind it together. And lots of people on Twitter have been complaining, oh, you know, like she didn't actually do anything. She doesn't have any individual accomplishments and so on. But that's the point of a constitutional monarch. They're not meant to be there by virtue of their um, charisma or their capacities or their skills. And they're supposed to not do anything apart but, from cut ribbons and officiate over. So, congrat- so congratulations for living long and not dying until. No, but my dying. point is. No, I mean, no, that, there, is, is there is something about is... that, right? That the, 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 the two skills you need as a constitutional monarch are the ability to do that hand wave thing where you just rotate your hand and to living long and she lived to 96 so you've got to say you know fair fucks and she has i mean fair fucks it's it's important also to remember right that she wasn't supposed to be queen when she was born right so she's only she was only queen by virtue of her uncle edward the seventh um, stepping down in the abdication crisis of the interwar period her father becoming king leading to her becoming queen and you know i mean if the biographers are to be believed her father was still never quite recovered from the shock of having to become king that it kind of shortened his life um, which is partly why she ascended the throne so young in her 20s so the point being though that this um you know that she uh, she had a very strong sense of public duty as a constitutional monarch. Um, and I think that's important, particularly because it seems to be so absent um, from her heir, who has been kind of um, an inveterate meddler as heir to the throne. Um, anyway, so those are some kind of opening reflections on her global status, on her um, status as a world historic persona, um, and also on her status as a 20th century figure, because the, obviously the story of the British 20th century from the middle of the 20th century when she took over is one of decline, um, at least in Britain's standing in the world, if not in terms of, um, you know, its economy and um, and uh, the lives of its people. That's a more complex picture. So anyway, what do you guys think? I want George to provide the gammon perspective and Alex to provide the kind of hostile, um, decolonial kind of he's British, really, but pretending not to be British perspective. Off you go. So is the is the is it gammon first? Britain gammon first, first, yeah. Gammon first. As it were. Yeah. I mean, I think what what you know only happened yesterday, but what I've been <clears throat> struck by, and perhaps, you know, shouldn't be struck by something like this at this at this stage now, is that the dominant response has been essentially a corporate, like a corporate PR one. People have internalized this like idea that it's like a um you're expected to have a kind of straight bat expression of general sadness and you know from poundland to pizza express to ann summers um you can go on i think it's grief watch um twitter account and you can see all of the the um various businesses kind of saying you know this is a tough time you know maybe you'll feel better if you have some pizza or something like that uh good good old-fashioned english pizza um and you know but this is not just the place of um corporate entities now everybody increasingly feels the requirement to make a public um a public statement to their twitter followers which could be in the you know the double digits or could be in the six digits or whatever um but yeah this is like the the dominant response is is one of i don't know a, a, putting a professional face on and um kind of having an, an official official statement um but yeah that's my my initial response i don't think i can really I'm probably not a true gammon. I can't really channel the 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 gammon feeling. I'm I'm afraid to say. The, 
I mean, Britain, I guess, is like 80%. In, I mean, of the, the Republicans poll in uh, consistently around 20%, right? So about a fifth of the population has consistently been in favor of the abolition of the monarchy, but it's never really grown much beyond that. Uh, and of course, even even amongst those people, there'll be people, you know, displaying the usual uh, emotionally correct response to it. Um, but it's always struck me. I mean, it was always a thing. I think anybody who's kind of observed Britain is to go, how can this, you know, old feudal remnant still persist? And, you know, even the contrast with somewhere like Sweden um, or, you know, Norway, which are also constitutional monarchies, but where the royals there are have been become much more egalitarian. They don't have all the kind of pomp and circumstance and the glitz that Phil was describing. Uh, you know, they in in a lot of uh, the writings on this actually talk about them as bicycling uh, monarchs or you know bicycling royals. You know, they ride their bikes mm. around. They're an ordinary person. I think that's a bit overstated. I mean, you know, you just have the royal weddings um, associated with these families, and you know they do kind. Of, they'll put on the medals. You know that they haven't kind of um, that they didn't actually. They weren't sure, but... really awarded. And the gold brocade for the state occasions. I mean, uh, you know, there is a point there. There is a difference between the stature of the European royal families and the British royal family. But I think it can be overstated. And I think the error, though, I think you're right. That's what a lot of people think of. But the error is to think that its strength lies in its character as a feudal remnant. And this is something which yeah. I think has been, you know, the a kind of uh, a long standing mistake on the part of the British left. Um, their kind of their genuflection to continental and especially French Republican traditions has made them utterly kind of misconceive and overstate uh, the nature of the royal family's appeal. And there's a telling um, there's a telling line in the Guardian piece, which was written in 2017 and was kind of a very good piece of journalism in that it um, went through all the people who will be responsible for managing the state occasion of a funeral and kind of laid it out for the first time in public view. But there's a line in there from Walter Walter Bagot, the uh, famous 19th Victorian constitutional theorist, where he says, the more democratic we become, meaning Britain, the more splendid the royal family will have to become. And he saw the link between um, Britain's character as a bourgeois state and the status of the royal family, whereas everyone on the left has assumed the opposite, that the status of the royal family is the feudal throwback. And that's profoundly, you know, profoundly misconceived. And is not only kind of a, I don't think is not only like an intellectual mistake, but has also had political consequences because it's diverted a significant proportion of the British left and its intellectuals in particular into thinking that the task for, for the British left was modernization of a feudal regime. Um, so getting rid of the House of Lords, for instance, uh, modern, you know, getting rid of the monarchy and at the same time is kind of snidely castigating working class, um, ordinary working class people who happen to like, you know, the monarch compared to the crappy politicians that were given to them. And so, you know, and in many ways that there's modernization happened. You know, Tony Blair modernized the House of Lords. It's no longer aristocratic. It's mainly techno-populist in the sense that it's a chamber, an unelected chamber to which populists and technocrats are appointed. Um, but, you know, still our situation didn't really improve for having, um, having a non-aristocratic second chamber. So I think that kind of idea that it's a feudal remnant is um, misconceives its power. And I think it misconceives its allure and also why it's still appealing to, um, you know, just so many kind of ordinary people on the street. 
um, compared to, um, you know, what kind of intellectual leftist intellectuals think of how they should respond? So, I mean, there's this piece, which is also in the, in the show notes in which you sent around, Phil, um, by Tom Nairn, Scottish uh, New Left intellectual on the Windsors, which I think is very much worth reading if in, in some ways it's still relevant, in other ways it's quite outdated, because one point that he makes is that it's not, of course, just the royals and that the British left's obsession with the royals and with that modernization um, missed what the you know the role that they performed in a much more broad structure in, in in terms of preserving social conservatism now he wrote this in 1977 and that is most likely kind of one could say at the very tail end um before the disappearance of that old social conservatism and deference um in british society so in that regard it's it is more of a period piece the the that piece in the new left review um but at one point he makes about the um, why the monarchy exists in Britain and especially the form in which it exists um, it has to do with the development of Britain. And I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but he, he makes this great point, which is the firstborn capitalist state, like the firstborn socialist states of the 20th century, suffered profound deformations, which reflected its struggle against the hostile world environment. So although Britain is an entirely capitalist state, entirely bourgeois, it looks deformed because it isn't created out of nothing like the United States or through a revolutionary overthrow like France's and therefore it the form it takes is much more you mangled mean, or, and uh, or like the English or like the English Republic and the execution of Charles the first under well, Oliver well but that was but that was reversed right so they so so the the point is is that you end well, up it with... wasn't that was the point I mean I think that's the issue is precisely their underestimation of the English Revolution um Tom I think we should well, talk talk, talk talk I through that should... point. Talk that through that point because it's important. Well, maybe maybe we can go through what what Nan's account is. You know the Nan Anderson theses of like of you know I think have been extremely influential. This idea. That essentially, you know, to to boil it down quite significantly, England had um, a, a partly successful or uncompleted bourgeois revolution in 1640, and after this, the aristocracy and the emerging bourgeoisie fused um, to produce this kind of backward, and they 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 use um, a far more um, eloquent language and a, a number of um, very well chosen adjectives to, to describe this kind of situation. But essentially, as Phil was saying before, it, it sets up the main problem of like getting rid of all the feud, like hosing off all the like feudal like limpets which are stuck to the. See, I'm 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 warming to this. You're soaring. Now. You're soaring <laughs> to Andersonian <laughs> the, heights, George. The 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 feudal limpets which have attached themselves to the the bourgeois um craft or the hull of the bourgeois craft. Um anyway, I think I got lost in the language there. But the basic point is it it poses as Phil was saying modernization as the as the task because you're never going to get any further forward until you recognize that all of these um um this aristocratic and feudal remnants are holding you back. I mean, but this is, I mean, it's, I think it's important to note, you know, that this is obviously not a discussion that entirely exclusively pertains to Britain because the um, removing of feudal vestiges 
is something that confronts people in various other countries, you know, in, in formerly colonized countries as well. Yeah, um, and, I mean, and, that's and, and, so it's not accidental that it was the new left that took it up because they were obsessed with the third world. Right. And so they and it was a way of kind of, you know, it speaks to their kind of, um, you know, they wanted they were critical intellectuals. So they were critical of the countries in which they grew up. Um, and, you know, Tom Nairn's critical of the kind of dreary, um, I don't know, dreary Presbyterianism of post-war kind of Scotland and the social democratic state. So you want to be critical and hostile. And so and the mistake is to think that it's more backward than it is, right? No, I, I think that I think that's absolutely correct. Um, the the I think what I'm drawing attention to with the quote that I uh, read out is that um, it looks more mangled, right, in comparison to France, and which is a much more centralized, rationalized state uh, relative to the Britain one, but to the British one. But in content, um, it's fully modern, and I think this is a point which is also made. You know, I kind of made this point in re- reference to Brazil, but it it pertains very broadly as well, that you have these kind of feudal looking sort of remnants, but that is a feature very much of capitalism and that capitalism has kind of grown up through the husk of this old tree. And and so it is fully capitalist, bourgeois, um, despite whatever ornaments or or, um, mollusks, (laughs) feudal mollusks, if we want that hang on to it. Yeah, I take, I mean, I think we should probably drop the nautical metaphors at this point, but I take, I mean, I take your point, Alex. I mean, I suppose though, I'd say like, it's not, I think, you know, they were entranced by, I mean, it's a point I've made before on the pod, but they're too focused on certain kinds of things. And they allowed themselves, you know, the kind of the the archaic rituals of how uh, the Queen opens Parliament or whatever. Um, and Blackrod, you know, taps the door before he goes in with the mace and all this nonsense. And they're too, you know, they focus too much on that. They underestimated the extent of Britain's um, reorganization as an industrial state over the course of the 20th century. They underestimated the force of British corporatism. And ultimately, you know, for all of their kind of um, claims that modernization was the task, it made them more conservative because it made them deprioritize um, working class demands in favor of kind of what they took to be tasks of generic bourgeois modernization, um, like entering into the European Union. This was one of the big kind of arguments on the left was that it will help us kind of this backwards, fusty, um, traditional, you know, hidebound island will be integrated into this more modernizing, thrusting European project. I think it's I, well. I just think it's worth going through the the history that Nan lays out a, a little bit before kind of coming to his his political uh, judgment. Although I think you know, Phil, I think that is that is right that the um, the the assessment of the monarchy is and all of that kind of structure is intimately associated with with the you know particular political priorities that the new left ended up having. But I think it is worth like kind of going back into some of the history and the it was the the house of hanover that was bought over from germany in 1714 um by a british ruling class um eager to to kind of um you know defend its own position um and this is nair's account so they became the windsors in the in 1917 um due to possibly at that point understandable anti-german sentiment um no longer our our our, our german friends are now very welcome um in in this country um and so the idea was this is how and on the end account this is how the um eventually how because of the weakness of the hanoverians transplanted uh over to england this is how 
the post-1688 kind of settlement was able to resist um, modernization. So this kind of show crown, this like state order employed this symbolism of a of a monarchy controlled by that fused aristocracy and bourgeois ruling class in order to um, stop um, things moving forward. So it's a it's an it's an account that sort of sees the um, or concludes with this idea that the and this is a quote from then the magic of our monarchs is a sweet odor of decay arising from this mountainous dunghill of unfinished bourgeois business. So the idea being like it, you kind of you have this stalled progress. So we're still essentially in this post uh, 1688 position and the monarchy is 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 part of this um, kind of uh, structure which which maintains the status quo rather than enabling development i don't know how you, i mean if, yeah. if listeners have no. read the piece that's just repeating the the, the account there but i think it's no, worth but it's, and that's useful yeah. that's useful, useful I, yeah. I think that there's a great line in it i mean which is that you know their ideology the, the monarchy's ideological force is built upon an ancient loss of radical nerve by the bourgeoisie itself uh, upon the inner capitulation of last century, most strikingly expressed for us by the virtual disappearance of middle-class republicanism in Victoria's reign. I think that's true, but what's, what it points out as well is that the bourgeoisie was happy to accommodate itself to political forms, which wouldn't have been the type of things cooked up in the ideal bourgeois lab of, of, of shiny capitalism, um, but accommodated because ultimately what it's question, what was ultimately important was economic power and not the forms that political power took as long as the, the bourgeoisie had, was able to, was able to rule because the point made here is that the monarch is there, but is ultimately not involved in the day-to-day -day affairs of running the country. So, yeah, um, though, I mean, that's been be I mean, so it took, you know, a long time, obviously, for the constitutional monarchy to emerge as it has. But again, I mean, I think the point is that Nairn underestimates what was achieved through the even with the restoration of Charles II um, and the glorious revolution of 16, so-called of 1688, that the fundamental kind of social and economic and political achievements of the English Revolution um, were not kind of substantively reversed or mangled or, you know, kind of... Um, uh, you know, at least in in respect of their bourgeois character. And so to that extent, he underestimates the successes of the English Revolution um, and is too kind of head up on the fact that there was a restoration of a monarchy. But it was a constitutional monarchy and it wasn't, there was never a reversion to um, absolutism like you had, say, in France. You know, yeah. there was never a reversion to absolutism in the case of uh, the British, English, Scottish crowns. Um, and so, so, yeah, so I, I wanted to ask I what the, what the function. Different... Sorry, I didn't. Well, I was up. about to. I, I think I'm about to answer your question. Why don't you ask it and then I'll. Uh, and well, I'll yeah, just, what, what is the function it. of the monarchy today? Because of course, it, it's not. It's rather changed. So, before you um, interrupted me there, Alex, I was going to say that the the function of the monarchy from that point until today. I mean, on Phil's reading and on any reading which I think emphasizes the achievement of the English Revolution is more a sign of the bourgeoisie's success because they are able to accept this symbol, um, but it doesn't fundamentally change the structure of power. So, you know, it, I think that that I think it is important to make that inversion and to say that to defend the gains of the English Revolution and to say that this is, you know, this is um, the fact that you can have this uh, this symbolic uh, head of state with no um, form, with no you know real political power, is a, actually a sign of a 
of a, a bourgeoisie that made it all the way to the top as it were so what is the fun what is the function of the um the monarchy today i think there's there's some interesting analyses of this the, the so it's not like the queen that's the central person it's the royal family it's this idea of you know you've and this is a royal family without an e on the end of royal royal family with an e on the end it's a tv show which does have some some links that's a bit Very of british niche. culture for people i mean it's good though people should watch it but anyway this is a kind of um this replacement of this you know it, it's a domesticization it's you know specific appeal to to women it's a um a reflection the symbol becomes a reflection of the society um of that point in time so it becomes a you know um, a more bourgeois um increasingly um kind of family and this is you know this is what it's it's intending to to do is just to reflect back to people um, some idealized version of of the sorts of um, bourgeois lives that they're living. I mean, I think that would be my my take on the uh, like very roughly on the, the development of the monarchy since um, 17th century. Yeah, I guess what's interesting is the role that the queen specifically has kind of grown into, especially as a lot of the rest of the royal family. Uh, has been hit by disgrace of various sorts or just simple yeah. dislike. And and the whole, you know, there, the whole pomp and circumstance, people start feeling like, Ugh, you know what, I, I don't really like all that posh stuff that much. But the queen, she seems sound. She's always there, you know? And I think it's like that very fact we were joking about it, you know, her constancy of effectively not dying um, and not really having much of a, projecting much of a, concrete uh, substantial image of what she actually is and stands for um played very much to her favor and i think this is what makes this moment interesting otherwise i wouldn't care in the slightest about the death of some faraway monarch um but is the is the fact that it she tied the whole she you know she held the room together right she uh i think she, it is probably one of the last is... the last the last symbols in, in britain which had which has a lot of public adherence and trust She's the only one. I mean, I think, and this is why we've, you know, we've kind of spoken about the history and some of her global stature and her, maybe her world historic kind of um, what she's overseen. But I mean, she's the last kind of, it's not even the monarchy, but just her, her public persona, her life and public persona is the last kind of national institution um, holding together the British state. Um, you know, cause the NHS is kind of, um, well, it disgraced itself in, um, in lockdown. And I hope I don't hear the sound of a listener killing themselves because I mentioned it one more time. But it disgraced itself in lockdown when it kept away, um, you know, when it told sick people to stay away. But lots of people um, still love the NHS, right? I mean, they and they've clapped for the NHS workers. So I don't. It's on. It... It's it's. I mean, it's wrecked. It's crumbling apart, and it's going through a period of delegitimation. I think, and it will have been even though there was the clapping for NHS workers as an institution. Um, it's, you know, kind of, I think it's, uh, it's supposedly a reverential kind of sacralized status, I think has been stripped and lockdown, I think helped accelerate that. Anyway, the point being that there is no other public institution. And I think this is the thing though, you know, so radicals kind of in a, you know, in a kind of vulgarized or crude version of the Nair Anderson thesis, why are all these stupid people so enamored of the queen? You know, why do these stupid people vote for things that are against their interests? Why do these stupid, thick workers, why do they like the queen? Don't they see that it's against their interests, blah, blah, blah. And I think what it misses is that um, 
there you know she is this she's the symbol of this she's the only people feel like a connection with a symbolic political figure of state authority which they obviously don't feel with their elected politicians and that is you know understandable given the kind of precipitous decline in the stature and authority of elected leaders in the last 40 50 years right so my point is right that it shouldn't i mean i don't think it's so mysterious it's not feudal the remnants of feudal deference and this and that right it is it's the contrast of a figure who has performed their role kind of um well you know not especially demanding in terms of um you know the substance of the role if nonetheless kind of laborious and time consuming and what have you but right it's by contrast that there is kind of a connection to the state um and that is something which i think when you know that is why she has such significant um has had significant enduring support and which and, is why the monarchy probably won't now that she's gone yeah i was about to say that the, i mean so elizabeth is the support that she enjoys is i would say people's projection of their support for essentially social democracy i mean that sounds kind of like counterintuitive but i think it is actually true that it's a that that's the time those were the institutions which existed at the point when there was a you know a british nation that's when she you know in the early 50s when she became became queen and you know obviously stayed stayed at the top of the pile until until just yesterday um and that's not possible now like charles is not able to draw on that reserve of um of i guess reflected residual loyalty loyalty political authority community and political nation i mean he's like this weird kind of conservative neoliberal figure and i don't think anybody can really can really kind of (laughs) um get too excited about that you know i i think people will be there to um to see the queen off and to to go to the um the state funeral but in terms of the coronation i can't you know i can't see too many people um um getting behind philip uh, philip behind charles in, in, in that <laughs> wow you're you're, over, you're promoting me you're promoting me pretty quick there i was George. thinking now i was thinking prince philip um uh, he's long gone I, I think well, I he think was he was long he was he's long long gone he was long gone before they admitted he was gone according to some it's um I, I think it's worth also mentioning especially for listeners not so familiar with British history and you know that you've had also the rise of Scottish nationalism the rise of English nationalism which particularly amongst the working class um which has really frayed the previously existing British identity. I mean, if you if you see kind of the waving of flags, you'll see way more England flags in a way that you never used to. There used to be, you know, the, always the Union Jack. Um, and that plus devolution and so on means that, yeah, I guess when you talk about kind of declining trust in the British state, declining belief in it, that it's it, it's kind of falling apart in kind of fragmentary terms like Scotland and, you know, Scotland and England and Wales, but also in terms of just and the Ireland. institutions and Ireland, obviously, and the institution of the state um, as a kind of, um, yeah, it's a sort of unitary state, not just as a national question. Um, yeah. But w- and I think what, what's interesting about this moment as well is that I, I think no one I think British people do not like popularly do not historicize their state in the way that many other people do. You know, I think it's a deficiency because of that continuity that you haven't, you know, even the French for whom for whom the state is kind of a very kind of pivotal and central thing. It's still seen as an achievement 
right? Even if it's maybe, you know, not criticized enough, it was, it's a historical achievement. It's something that the state was created. Um, Germans, of course, have no sense of, of the state being there kind of always and forever because it, it very much hasn't been. And very, various other countries have been through these tumults and Britain hasn't, or to the extent that it did, it was back in the 17th century and it's forgotten about and probably not taught yeah, about I enough think, in schools. So I think that's right. And so I, I think, think probably- that her death, just to finish the thought, that her death, uh, Elizabeth's death, is um, in some ways might provoke a certain thinking about, hang on, what is the state? I, I don't know. What do you no, I think that's think? right. I mean, I think she, her sheer longevity has, um, as we already mentioned, I mean, you know, like it's covered up so much, I mean, phenomenal kind of change, not only in kind of Britain's status in the world, but also just in terms of its uh, social um, and, you know, racial demographic i mean you know on almost every conceivable level the extent of the change that she's seen under her reign has been kind of um astonishing right and so i think that change now that she's gone that change will become much more prominent much more difficult to avoid and its consequences um will need to be you know what its political consequences are will need to be addressed and i think you're right i think kind of what george said about the the coronation of of charles iii is likely to be fairly low key. I mean, I think they've announced that already, and I think that's probably quite wise, right? You'll certainly have a, a honeymoon period, um, and there'll certainly be a lot of public sympathy for him at the beginning, and so on. Um, but like you know, I think uh, you know, as George indicated, like uh, what the left always misconceived about the monarchy and the queen in particular was that it was uh, kind of a that her popularity was nostalgia in a way for um, for a social democratic post-war nation state. Um, and that, you know, that will be gone now. Um, mm. And I suppose... I mean, I have and, a, and I guess the, I, I the honeymoon... Sorry, any... just to ask a thing. Like, okay. I get, will the honeymoon period wear off just as uh, the energy prices really hit? Because that would be quite a quite a I mean, well, there's... So for those listeners who aren't in the UK, the government has announced um, caps on prices... Um, in terms of the unit, at least in terms of their unit distribution costs. So there will be limits to how much people are expected, at least initially, to pay. But the borrowing will have to be funded through taxation. So it will the costs will be imposed on um, on ordinary Britons. Um, so, but I mean, I think you know, like I don't think the energy crisis will be the thing that'll bring down the um, you know Charles the Third, but there'll be less of a reservoir of sympathy. Like I mentioned before, he's an inveterate constitutional meddler, so we'll call into question the his role as a constitutional figurehead, which his mother always understood extraordinarily well. Um, and so I think that is what is more likely to the lack of kind of spontaneous kind of legitimacy and also the um, his kind of ideological idiosyncrasies around um, he's a supporter of climate alarmism, for instance. Uh, and he'll also make lots of comments, I imagine, as well. I think one <clears throat> I'm not necessarily predicting this and I don't know if there are any kind of royal strategists listening in, but like one thing that he could do is really rebrand quite aggressively as like the cool the cool king like so call himself trey and like be down with environmentalism and various things like this i think the but he, he's precisely quite... the face of like the fustiest image of environmentalism talking to his plants being into kind of organic and so on you know it's oh. not the kind of we need to forcefully take charge to stop climate change now you know he could he could join extinction rebellion he could um 
you know, be pictured reading books about how to blow up pipelines, it, like, you know, just <laughs> on holiday in in Hello or OK or any of the other kind of celebrity gossip magazines. But I guess my my more serious point is is basically he doesn't have he, he is a bit more of a wild card in the sense of of not um, probably seeming, although I'm sure his advisors will caution him against this, not seeming to appreciate the very limited role that the that the monarch is expected to to play as i said you know just don't die and and and, and wave um essentially and you know go you know learn how to cut a ribbon i guess but i think there is there is sort of something there about this um <clears throat> i guess this response and and whether this is a, a a period for um an increase in republicanism i think there are some people who've suggested you know now's the time to strike at the monarchy um, which doesn't really seem to me to be um, serious as, you know, despite the, the sympathy that I might have that for that position, you have the kind of the sneering anywheres, as you might put them, who are kind of, you know, circulating around WhatsApp groups, the worst of the reactions of the flag shaggers and monarchy cucks and things like this. But the question of who's really, I guess, prepared to sort of de- tangle with the the deeper questions of, what this transition or yeah not even really what this transition means but what this this loss of um a a figure representing essentially post-war british history what that means i don't know who is who is actually genuinely acting seriously rather than just affecting gravity or gravitas or or solemnity so i um i mean i suppose one thing that i think when you know like i mentioned at the start of when we when we started chatting when the kind of the glare of the world's media subsides and after the coronation and what have you um i think and people are left with the fact of um i think it'll be an entirely new country in a way um just by virtue not of you know simply by virtue of a symbolic change which is to say a symbolic ceremonial head of state has changed um but people will be forced to reckon with um the uh, enormity of the changes that have taken place in Britain over the last 40, let alone, you know, the 70 years of Elizabeth's uh, reign. Um, So on that note, I think that I think people will maybe begin to wake up to the fact that they've been living in a kind of um, in a fantasy version or a fantasy version of what kind of, um, you know, public opinion in the rest of the world holds for Britain, um, and whether or not they want to live like in kind of the tourist's view of Britain, which is, um, you know, Harry Potter and Bridgerton and um, Downton Abbey, and how far, you know, the Britons kind of, whether or not they want to inhabit that kind of tourist's view of Britain, the view of Britain from um, the palace gates and the changing, the guard, you know, the soldiers in the red the red coats and the bearskin hats, the trooping of the colour and the changing of the guard, or whether they want to live in a different kind of country. Yeah, I think that's basically it, isn't it? It makes the the nostalgia or the kind of the longing for that kind of stylized version of 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 Britain just less less appealing, less compelling, and open space for, or, or maybe maybe open space, or maybe it makes it necessary to kind of think about what you know what modern Britain really really is. Yeah, and, and certainly, I mean, from abroad, I, I don't think Britain is particularly popular, and I don't think, you know, um, British tourists are, are particularly uh, popular around the world, but that at the same time coexists with 
this romantic view that people like to indulge themselves in um, of the queen, of all these elements that, you know, have just been mentioned. And part of it is just simply that it represents a bit of an adult Disneyland, right? And in, in fact, in many cases, like the, the people who like to go to Disneyland on holiday are the same people who are into the monarchy. Um, they buy the magic and you know, we're a, we're in a very kind of disillusioned sort of world um, where the old forms of tradition don't have hold and nor are there any kind of new allegiances and symbols to hold on to. And as a consequence, various forms of kind of magical uh, bits kind of flow into that. Um, but without this kind of longstanding queen who's been there for most people's adult lives, uh, I don't know how much that, that, um, that thing still works. Of course, you know, and this is just to conclude, abroad, outside of Britain, um, and certainly outside of any of the Commonwealth countries, the British monarchy doesn't perform any political function, even symbolically. Um, so it is just, um, the, the only thing to really say about it is a comment on how people might buy into that and what it says about them, rather than her death somehow having some real material effect in, or even, you know, symbolic effect in, in, their, um, in their daily lives. But I was just going to say, we we should make it clear that at time of recording, Silvio is still going. He is he's going to outlast. He's the new king. He's yeah, all these, all these he's going to be president of the Senate, I think. Right. So um... yeah, he, I mean Gorbachev, the Queen. Like insert the person Sylvia. between this recording and it being released, who's who's also passed. But Silvio will will never die. Well, uh, he not maybe not the king we want, but the king we deserve. All right, that's it from this uh, exceptional uh, monarchist. Uh, Bunga cast recording. Um, I never thought we'd do an episode on the Queen, but there we go. I hope you've enjoyed it. Catch you later. Bye bye. Maybe like a Game of Thrones type um type thing. Like um, the house of the house of the Windsor. The house of retarded Germans. Well, fall of the house of Windsor, yeah. No, because we're not talking about the end of the monarchy. We didn't make any real progress. No, No, we did. We did. It's fallen. You could Um, have and you could have like where Jon Snow kills Daenerys, but like the Queen's head photoshopped on He kills Daenerys? Oh spoiler alert. Sorry. No, I've seen all of Game of Thrones. He kills her at the end. He fucking stabs her, doesn't oh, really? he? Oh, okay. I couldn't remember that. Uh, anyway, um... look, no, we're not going to do... I don't want to have fucking Jon Snow stabbing the queen. <laughs> uh, but although it'd be funny if it was Jon Snow, the Channel 4 presenter, <laughs> stabbing the queen. <laughs> have have, have Jon Snow stabbing Daenerys, but Jon Snow's the Channel 4 guy on Jon Snow's Oh, head. my God. Look, I've got I've got things to do. My working day isn't over yet. So, oh, that'd be good. <laughs> Jesus, it's not it's that funny, so Alex. Dumb. <laughs> it's so dumb. You better laugh. Uh, anyway, okay.